Ready to go? It's uh, great to have you guys. Um, so this morning, uh, I was sitting up in my favorite room in the building. Uh, we call it the boardroom. And um, I was watching something that I know many of you haven't seen for multiple years. Uh, it's called The Sunrise. And it's a pretty, just take my word for it, it's pretty incredible. And uh, I was sitting up there and uh, watching this across the river as it was going down and people were running on, walking on the Katy Trail and airplanes flying out of Lambert, just like incredibly struck in awe with, with beauty. And so, um, as you do, I took a picture with my phone of eye, and this is the picture I took this morning. Um, now, the amazing thing about a sunrise is you're waiting, you're waiting for it. Like you're waiting on the moment as you're looking at the horizon when the little crest of the sun like pops up for the first time and I don't know if you've ever tested this but what's amazing about a sunrise against the horizon is you can literally watch it like move you know like there's no other part of the day where you're just like in the irises of, of with your eye like looking at the sun for minutes you know but but there's something about that mi- that moment and uh, so because I wanted to bless you I took a picture of that moment too I was having fun with my camera and um now it was in this this moment, honestly, um, this morning when I experienced one of the, m- the more overwhelming moments I've had in a long time. I was watching the sun rise and the waters moving on the river. And again, people are running and walking on the Katy Trail and cars are moving on Riverside Drive. And in that moment, I was overwhelmed with this intense understanding of the depth of God's power, that somehow God's holding the sun in his hands and he's causing the water to move and he's giving breath and life to these people that are running and walking on the Katy Trail and he's blessed all of these people with jobs and the ability to have cars as they go by while he's listening to my prayers in this boardroom. And as I like sat and just was overwhelmed with the depth of his power in that moment, I like all of a sudden came to this realization that I literally have no idea what it means to say God is all powerful. Let me explain. Um, How many of you guys grew up going to carnivals? Any of you guys? Carnivals? You like carnivals? Okay. Some of you have never heard of them. Some of you are a carny. No matter where you land in that. uh, I grew up going to carnivals. There was this festival uh, called the Gladiola Festival. I know many of you don't know what a Gladiola is. It's an in, insanely long flower. Have, do you guys know what a Gladiola is? Okay. Uh, the cool thing about this particular carnival is all of my cousins would go together. I had many cousins around the same age. There's a certain smell to the carnival, isn't there? It's kind of a mixture of uh, cotton candy and funnel cake and uh, the oil of, from the gears of the rides, which... There's actually something something about it. It's actually a horrible smell. Like when you mix those three smells, you would never bottle that and put it in a cologne. You know, just it's actually a pretty horrible thing. Anyways, um, I was always excited about going to the carnival, except the one moment when we got to this one particular thing, and uh, it was the, you know what I'm talking about, the little pad with the hammer and the power scale. It was so incredibly scary, especially when you arrived at that little thing with a group of guys. 
because you all like walked up to it and you're like looking around like, okay, no one step up to it because I don't want to have to prove myself right now. And then someone hands them your money. And you're like, oh my goodness, are you serious? Because you know, you know you're in it now, right? Like everyone's going to have to pay and everyone's going to have to prove themselves. And again, every year, never failed, all of my cousins would gather around this little power meter. And you know for sure you didn't want to be the guy that like put, a three, put, a, put up a three on the thing. You know what I'm saying? Because then you knew no one would ever like you again. Like you were out of the family. I hate you. You're ostracized. Go live in a cave the rest of your life. Like that's what they would do, you know? It was always humiliating. Uh, what I realized this morning, in this moment, was that I've... I've understood God's power in some like carnival understanding. That somehow I've come to situations in my life where I've asked God to flex his muscles. Where I've pleaded with God like, listen, please show me your power now. And, and if you do in accordance with the way I'm, I'm thinking your power might go, then I'll say you're all powerful well, what I realized in this moment is a God who's causing the water to move and the sun to rise and people's lungs to have air and still somehow hearing my prayers, I have no clue to the depth and the understanding of how all-powerful He really is. And I've convinced myself as a Christian that saying God is all-powerful is just one of those things that you're supposed to say and yet what I realize is I'm not so sure that many of us have a good understanding of what that really means. So... If you're here tonight, I want to take us on a journey, if you don't mind, through the Word of God on a discovery of what His power really is. So you guys ready to go? I want you guys to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. That's what we do here. We study God's Word, not Oprah or myths. We believe that God's Word is good, that we should study it word for word. That's why we don't skip around. That's why we don't teach, uh, teach themes. Rather, we just plow through it. We've been studying Hebrews 11. It's a study of um, many heroes of the faith for lack of a better term, uh, these men and women uh, show us the depth of what God can do in a man or woman. And last week we started, as I creatively titled, Moses Part 1. Moses, of course, a pretty epic character in the Scripture. He's put on a little carriage boat when he's three months old, sent down the Nile, a woman by, uh, who happens to be Pharaoh's daughter, she's a pretty significant character, picks him up pretty much adopts him. Moses becomes a prince. When he's 40 years old, he realizes that he's actually been a Jew this whole time, an Israelite. He comes to this moment in his life when he realizes two lives are one too many, and so he decides to break it off. He no longer wants to be an Egyptian and a Jew. He wants to own his true identity. And so that's where we pick up tonight in verse 27 of Hebrews chapter 11. When you're there, say I'm there. Wonderful, thank you, the three of you, the rest of you, good luck. Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. Verse 28, by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. In verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea, as if on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same were drowned. As you can see, a couple epic stories in biblical history, and we're going to tackle, uh, tackle it all in one night. So it all begins here in verse 27, and that says this. By faith, he left Moses, Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, Pharaoh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, my first question is, 
which leaving of Egypt are we talking about? Because he leaves Egypt twice. The first time, as I forementioned, he left when he was 40, heads to Midian. He's a prince of Egypt, goes to Midian, marries a gal, and then spends the next 40 years as a shepherd. Okay? I'm not sure if many of you uh, have a trade in shepherding, but it's a little bit less on the economic scale than a prince. Agree? Right? You don't need to be a math major to figure that out. That's what he does. God then calls him, raises him up when he's 80, but a young lad still. He sends him to be the mouth, the leader, the voice uh, of the Israelites. And then the second time guides the Israelites out of Egypt. He leaves twice. I honestly don't think it matters which one of the scripture is talking about here. Because I think there is some interpretive nuances that make it difficult. What I do believe is that there's one important factor to verse 27. And that's, that's that he left. Moses leaves Egypt. And you're like, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is what he leaves. As a prince, he leaves all of the wealth and all of the riches that have literally been handed to him. He leaves his comfort. Egypt is what he knows. He knows the culture. He knows how people talk. He knows what people think. He knows how to conversate. And my friends, he leaves all conventional wisdom. No one in their right mind would say, what do you think, prince or shepherd? You pick multiple choice, right? It would be a rarity to hear someone choose, oh, go with the shepherd, that's a good idea. He leaves all conventional wisdom. So he leaves behind a whole lot. What I love about that theme is he's not the only one in the scripture that leaves something. In fact, what you start to realize when you look at the Bible is that, is that there's this pattern, this principle that finds its way all throughout the scriptures. And it goes uh, something like this. Going always requires leaving. Always. You can never go somewhere without leaving somewhere. You may think, that's obvious? Okay, well let's work through it a little bit, shall we? Uh, Peter is another example. Jesus comes by after praying on the mountain. Comes down. Chooses his disciples. Peter is a what? Anyone know? He's a fisherman. He catches fish. I don't necessarily like fishing. I know many of you do. How many fishermen here? Okay, there we go. There's the patient. I am not patient. I lack patience. I readily admit my failure. I'm not a fisherman. Anyways, Peter's holding the net. It's all he knows. It's his comfort. He knows fishing, man. If you want to ask Peter about what it means to fish, he could tell you all of the rigmarole. He could say, this is where you go. This is how you do it. This is where you drop the nets. This is the time of day that you do it. And when Jesus comes and says, come and follow me, what he's saying is leave everything you know. He has to drop everything that's comfortable for him. Everything that he thinks all conventional wisdom would say go against. He has to leave it all. It's interesting in the scripture, there's also many instances where that means leaving the presence of God. Like, what does that mean? Well, uh, the first time that God speaks to Moses, it comes in the form of, a, anyone know, a burning bush. That's somewhat intriguing, isn't it? Right? God shows up, Moses goes on the mount, God's speaking to Moses through a burning bush. Had to be a pretty incredible image, right? Now, if, if I'm Moses, I'm personally saying, hey, look, there's no need for me to go anywhere else, right? Like, you told me to take off my shoes, that's somewhat freeing. You're speaking to me in a burning bush. This is amazing, right? Are you guys with me? Like, let's just set up camp here, God. Keep speaking to me through the burning bush. It provides a nice fire and heat, too, as well, right? But if he stays there, then how God is going to use Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery and bondage goes out the window. 
So even in Moses' case, it means, listen, I know you're enjoying the presence of the burning bush right now, but you've got to go. And so that means you've got to leave this as awesome as it is. Are you with me? There's another time, it's called the Transfiguration. Uh, Moses and Elijah uh, show up transfigured on a mountain with Peter, James, John, and Jesus there. That had to be a crazy moment, right? Now, Peter, I love him. I love him. Relate to him so much. I know many of the rest of you guys do as well. It's a cool moment in the scripture because Peter's like, uh, Master, uh, this is what uh, uh, Peter s- says to Jesus, it is good for us to be here, you know? Like, he would say with so many, like, this is is that Elijah over there? Like, this is incredible, you know? It's like tapping Peter, or he's tapping James. Like, dude, did you see this? Like, that's Moses, you know? And so, and so then, here's what Peter says. He says, um, hey, so here's the deal. This would be good. We're, I'm going to build some tents, and then, Eli- like, we can just all hang out, you know? Like, those, the guys down there, the rest of the disciples, they'll figure it out, you know? Uh, me, Moses, Elijah, this will be a big party, you know? I even got some matzo bread uh, under the covers here. Like, well, let's just enjoy some time together. No, like, he... They have to go back down. Jesus has to die. He has to walk out of the tomb. Are you with me? Going always requires leaving. Uh, Now, my fear is this. Is that many of you are trying to go without leaving anything. In fact, God uh, has been very clear with you about uh, a specific calling on your life or even a general calling. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to drag along this thing that's back here. And those of you that are trying to do it, which my contention would be many of you in this room, anytime you're trying to go somewhere, follow the will of God while trying to grab along this thing that he has clearly said leave, you know that this process right here is so burdensome. For some of you, it's a relationship. Hey, listen, you need to go over here to full abandonment in following me. And I know some of you are saying, yeah, yeah, no problem, God. Uh, but let's, like, here's the deal. Let's just bargain this out a little bit. You know, you give a little, I give a little. It all works out. I'm going to go ahead and drag along this person that has no understanding of you, that will have no comprehension of the calling. That you, but, you know, it, it will be good for... Anytime you do that, or for many of you, it's an addiction. Oh, oh yeah, God, like, I, I totally, I, I want to go, I want to follow you. But I'm going to go ahead and drag this addiction along with me. We can figure this out, God, right? No, we can't. It's it's go and leave or nothing. Many of you guys, you know this process of trying to go without leaving is like walking through a field that's thorny and that has periodic, you know, sinking sand pits. You know what I mean? It's, It's like the worst imagination ever. Sinking sand pits. What are they actually called? Quicksand. That's what that's called. Sinking sand pits. Just got to carry the one. Now, now, I know so many of you are right there tonight. You're trying to go without leaving. You think that you can go and leave and that somehow works simultaneously. No. Wherever it is that God is calling you to go, it means he's calling you to leave something behind. And you've rationalize it over and over in your mind. Well, maybe I can figure it. No. It's leaving all that's comfortable. It's leaving all conventional wisdom. It's leaving it all behind. Uh, I was a youth pastor in a big church making, honestly, good money. I had a good insurance package that even covered ingrown toenails. I was completely covered. I had dental coverage, right? 
I had a great job. And then God uh, called me one day and he said, um, hey, Mark, listen, I know that you know how to tape kids on walls. I know that you know youth ministry. I know that you know how to do crazy games and, you know, sing uh, kids songs and those kinds of things. But I want I'm calling you to church planting. Where you're literally going to watch me birth a church out of nothing. Well, all conventional wisdom would say, um, stick with the big church that pays you well. You know what I'm saying? Like this over here is all question marks. This over here is pretty comfortable. Like you've got a cool youth group name. You even have your own office. You have an assistant for heaven's sakes. I mean, this is money. Literally, you know. So the first time I went home and told my wife, hey, honey, we're calling to church plant. Uh, she smacked me across the face with her looks and words. Uh, not literally, because we don't believe in abuse in my household. Anyways, um, I remember her saying, like, so who, like, how are we going to pay the bills? I'm not so sure about that. Uh, so who's going to come? Uh, at least my mom, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay, so, so hold on. Uh, just to get this straight, my wife's speaking. So you want to leave all of these people that we know and love really, really well, and then you just want to start something. And all I could say was, like, yeah, God's calling me to go. And if he's calling me to go, then process of elimination, that means us, you know. <laughs> so that's, you got to, me, you, you complete me, you know. And um, <laughs> now, here's the thing. What seems so heavy initially Leaving comforts, leaving relationships, leaving even the treasures and pleasures of this world. And then six and a half year, uh, years later, I get to stand in this room and see God work like this. You understand how humbling that is for me every single week? And I'm not talking about numbers. I would feel the same way, my friends, if there were 15 of us in a room seeking the will of God together. Watching God call you to go and then watching him bring all of that to fruition. The power of God is not just seen in his capability to call you to do the impossible. The power of God is also seen in his empowering you to release the things that you're struggling leaving. And we think that God's power will just show up over here. I'm telling you right now. For the shame that you're trying to pull, the relationship, the addiction, all the stuff you're trying to drag with you, his power is completely sufficient to cause you to let the net go. So the thing I want to ask you tonight, um, next slide, is how would you fill this in tonight? By faith tonight, the scripture said in verse 21, Moses left Egypt. So what's your verse? What's your word what's your phrase tonight by faith i'm leaving this tonight i have to i've been trying to pull it along and it's killing me it's literally killing me i'm tired of it and you know that you can never fully go listen but some of you have experienced the moment when all of a sudden you realize it has to be done the freedom that that evokes come on now you know what i'm saying when you finally are like listen I am not going to feel shameful anymore for something I'm already forgiven for. I'm done dragging that shame with me. God, I'm going to go. You know the freedom in that is unbelievable, isn't it? It's like finally I can run without the weights on and six trash bags on my shoulders. 
So what is it for you tonight? By faith, which means, God, I trust that you have the power to help me leave it. So please, God, help me leave it behind, and I want to go and follow you. Are you with me? Verse 27, we're just getting started. Here we go, 28. Let's move on. By faith, he kept the Passover, that's interesting, and sprinkled the blood. Okay, pause real quick. Um, I recognize that uh, every week here, it's a blessing to have folks who have never been in church before. If I'm you right now, and, uh, and I see sprinkled the blood on the screen, I'm getting a little bit curious. You know what I'm saying? So, so hold, what's... So there's, are we going to sprinkle some blood here tonight? Like, this seems a little bit awkward. Is there some Kool-Aid that I need to drink later? Like, what's happening? You know what I'm saying? Let's just go ahead and recognize, for those of us that are believers, that we need to be sensitive. Help explain. If you're here tonight, never been in church before, have no concept of Christ, thank you for coming. It's amazing to have you here. Our heart is to show you, even in one night, how significant actually the blood is in the Scripture. And though it seems strange right now, my prayer is that by the end tonight, it won't seem strange at all. It'll seem powerful. And for those of us uh, who have come to Christ, like you know that at first that whole talk about blood seems incredibly weird. And then it becomes all source of life. Isn't that crazy? So the Passover sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer, the angel of death of the firstborn might not touch them. Well, this is a very interesting moment in Israelite history. Before we see and study the actual Passover, which we need to understand, I want to show you something else. In Exodus chapter 6, God has already called uh, Moses to go to Pharaoh and to challenge him. And there's a lot of things that come out of that, including uh, Pharaoh's command then to uh, cause the Israelites to have to work harder. Moses goes back to God and he's like, okay, so what now? And here's what God says in Exodus 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, God talking to Moses, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The Israelites have been in slavery for a long, long time. This has been no good. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This is God speaking. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you, reminding them of the old covenant, into the land, the promised land, that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. And then he says, I am the what? I am the Lord. So God says to Moses, here's the deal. Uh, You're going to go to the people and you're going to tell them, I'm going to redeem you from the Egyptian hand of slavery. Well, here's what happens. Moses goes, tells them that, and next slide, in uh, verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So Moses goes to the people, hey everyone, good news, God's bringing you out of slavery, right? And what does the scripture say? They did not listen. Not a one of them. Well, my big question is, how many people are we talking about here? Like, how many Israelites are there actually? Is this like a room full like this? And Moses comes just like I am now, and he says, hey, guys, look, it's all good. God's going to let us out and all of you. According to uh, Exodus chapter 38, verse 26, at this time, there are 603,550 men that are 20 plus of age that are ready to fight in the army. Uh, 
To have that many men, that means there's uh, some females. Amen. How many females here tonight? Little props to the females. Okay. Several and several confused. Anyway, um, several hundred thousand people that are just men, 20 plus, able to fight in God's ar- able to fight in the army. You add women to that, by low estimations, could we do some quick math here? We're talking at least a million Israelites. A million. Okay? One billion. You know, like we're, we're, talking, we're talking an incredible amount of Israelites. Now, I don't know what you pictured before, but I pictured kind of this small a journey of folks, maybe a couple hundred thousand, but not a million. Do you guys understand that it says they did not believe? The, the scripture would tell us. Not one Israelite, when Moses goes to them, believes that what Moses is saying is true. Well, Moses was already super scared about leading the people. When God says, hey, Moses, you're my guy. Moses is like, who am I? I can't speak well. Like, I've been a shepherd for 40 years. You're going to call me to lead a million people out of Egypt? And then, in one of his first opportunities, Pharaoh no-dices him, and all of the people don't believe him. This has got to be good for the confidence, you know what I'm saying? Like, God, are you serious? Like, what are you doing here? Then crazy stuff starts to unfold in the scripture. Watch this. The Passover, Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month, oh, hold on one second. In between this time, there's been many plagues, nine of them to be exact. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, if you don't listen, uh, there's going to be a ton of locusts that are going to be really annoying on all of your people, right? And the famous line, of course, from Charlton Heston's 1923 film is, let my people go in the scripture as well. Pharaoh's like, no, 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 you're not going and and enter the locusts and nine other plagues. Well, this is after all those nine plagues back in verse one. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In other words, life's about to change. To all the congregation of Israel, everyone, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. A lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Just so everyone understands. Uh, what God's saying initially is, listen, Moses, here's the deal. You're going to go tell all of Israel, every household needs a lamb. We've already done the numbers, okay? This is a tremendous amount of lambs. Can you say that plurally like that, right? This is a lot of lambs, all right? We're talking, and, in, and, and so far, just go get a lamb. So then the next question would be like, what are we to do with the little lamb once we get them? Next slide. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Hold on, seriously? Like, all of our households, all however many, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of households there are, we need to go get a lamb, and not just that, we need to get an unblemished one? Like, seriously, God, this is crazy. A male, a year old. Listen, I have no shepherding experience, okay? In old, ancient Israel and in Egypt, how do they tell that a lamb is a year old, right? I mean, God is very specific here. A male, we can figure that out, a year old. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is really interesting. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Okay, good. Thank you. That helps. Widening the gap. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Hold on a second. 
when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Horrible movie, all right? What's your problem? Listen. Seriously, don't ever watch that movie, please. God says, go get a lamb, a male, one year old. You can take from the sheep or the goats. At twilight, which is the time between kind of the end of sunset and when it's fully dark, everyone's going to kill the lamb. I need you as best as you can to be there. Are you with me? It's a tremendous amount of killing in one fell swoop. And so if you're hearing this and it's gone in this order, you're wondering why. Why are we going to kill a lamb all at the same time? And why does it have to be a male one-year-old and unblemished? Then God tells Moses this. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Um, okay, again, if you're an Israelite, you're wondering, okay, so hold, this has gotten really strange now. So we kill the lamb, and then its blood goes on the doorpost. What is happening here, you know? Right after this, there's a few verses that give instruction to Moses about how, how, how it is there to eat the lamb. And then this is how it ends here. In verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. His point is, listen, it's go time. We're getting you out of slavery now, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. This is God talking. Many people don't want to study the Old Testament because of passages like this. You have to somehow explain how God would enact this verse. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Listen, I, I just, don't you love when God speaks against man-made gods? And against all of the gods, lowercase, plural, of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I will prove that all these little measly, feeble, lackluster, non-existent, man-made gods are nothing in comparison to me. And then how does he end it? I am the Lord, right? Come on. If this doesn't excite you a little bit, wake up, right? So my big question for this is, I've noticed something in this passage that I've never noticed before. Not just every firstborn male is going to die, but what else do you see there? Every beast. Now, I've studied this, preached this many uh, times throughout the years. I've never ever for some reason seen the fact that every firstborn beast was going to be killed as well. So the question is why? Next slide. Uh, I know it's a little bit scary. Work with me. Uh, these are the uh, some of the Egyptian gods, goddesses. Um, I know. What, what do you notice here? What do you, what do you see outside of a large dog, right? What, what do you guys see on this? All of these gods and goddesses are what? They're like half human, half what? Half beast. So by God sending what Scripture would best describe, the angel of death, the destroyer, to come down and kill all the firstborn and all the beasts, what is God proving? Listen, all these like 
man-made, like half-animal, half-person gods that you worship? Watch this. You think, you, can, you think these can protect your firstborn? Watch this. You think these can protect your beast? No, 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 no. I am the Lord. And in one fell swoop, in one night, estimations say three to four million Egyptians. Uh, the scripture says in Exodus 12 that there was not one house, that there wasn't someone dead. Not one. Can you imagine the cry? Can you imagine the noise in the land as all of these parents are holding their dead children? And what's part of the pain for them? They had trusted in this and this failed them. And so their cries certainly are out of my child is now dead, but what else? In one fail swoop, all of their beliefs were cut at the knees when these Egyptians realized that all that we held true now seems on rocky ground. Isn't it amazing to know that you will never have to experience that pain? Isn't it incredible to know that the God that you trust in will never fail you'll never have to go through that pain you may have to hold a dead child i pray not but you may have to and i may too but in that moment the pain won't be god's not in control the pain won't be god's not sovereign the pain will be i love my precious children but the thought will still be god is faithful doesn't change who my god is and in this moment, all of the cries of the Egyptians is, everything now seems rocky. So that's the Egyptians. What about the Israelites? Well, we remember in Exodus 6 what the Israelites did. We just looked at it a second ago. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen. That's Exodus 6. Now, six chapters later, crazy, six chapters later, ten plagues. We're not even sure how many of these plagues they see. They certainly see some of them, or at least hear about them. Look at this. Look at this. Exodus 12, after the Passover, or right before the Passover, rather. Then the people of Israel went and did so. Male lamb, one-year-old, unblemished, blood on the doorposts and the lintels. All of them didn't believe and then now, all of a sudden, the scripture says, every single one of them take part in the Passover. Is anyone else at least a little bit set back by that? The scripture doesn't mention one Jewish baby that dies, or beast for that matter. Not one. So in six chapters of time, we have the whole nation is in unbelief. And in this moment, we have the whole nation all of a sudden follows what God had asked. What has happened here? Let me try to explain. I believe maybe you can see this. Um, the church here started with six people, three women and three dudes. And uh, we've gone through different seasons as a church, planted a couple churches, and right now we're currently in a season where God is growing us. I mean, we add extra, we're packed in here. I, like there used to be seats in between you all, and now you're like, and you're sitting on my lap. Could you scoot over a bit, you know? We have some private space again. God's growing our church. 
And I want to let you know something. Because many people, you know, have come up to me like, man, Mark, this is, it's crazy to, like all the growth, all the growth. I'm like, listen, first of all, any growth is grace. Any growth is grace. It's God being gracious and loving, just like he did when we were in our first year and we had 40 people and half of them were my family. It's no different. It's grace. God's being very gracious. It's never been based on a man, never will be based on a man. The gifts and talents of people. God's gracious, and so then the next question would be, okay, God's being gracious, but why? Why is God growing this community? Let me tell you why he's not growing this community, so that we can get fat in our self-preservation. Man, look at this. This is not, this kind of feels good, right? Grow, something's happening here. Like, this kind of feels like, he is not growing us to get fat on self-preservation. He is growing us. To be trained as missionaries, as people who are being changed by the gospel, to go out into our context, taking a message of love and truth and grace to a lost and dying world. That's why we're growing here, so that we can be sent out to live for Christ. Are you with me, my friends? And so what you start to see is a community of faith where God is moving in a group of people becomes incredibly encouraging because you are reminded every day that none of this has anything to do with any of us. And that's why it's so much fun. Yeah, I said fun. You're like, what do you mean? Listen, when I was younger, as a very young communicator, my biggest message at 16 when I started preaching was, what happened to the fun? Like, I'm pretty sure Jesus died on a cross and walked out of a tomb. Why does everyone look like he and you are still in the tomb? Wake up, you dead and decrepit. You see what I'm saying? I'm having more fun right now than I've ever had in my life. Why? Because Christ is alive, and I'm seeing his power move every single day. I am loving it. My family's growing closer together. I love the guys I get to work with. And getting to worship with you all is incredibly fun. That's why God is growing this church. And so you sit back now and you're like, so why did God do this miracle? Because the Israelites have many struggles after this. Many. This is miraculous, yes. But soon after this, they're like, so let's just go back to Egypt because this whole thing's not working out so well. Like, seriously? Are you guys morons? Yeah, they're just like us. Ready to go back to slavery when things don't quite go our way. The community of faith is one of the greatest revealers of God's power. And as I stand here before you, it's unbelievable to get to see God's power in you. And I want to kind of hang on that thought for a second. We'll come back to it. But put up verse 28 again for me. Just as we close up verse 28. By faith, Moses, he kept the Passover. He keeps it. Sprinkled the blood, all the people. God does a miraculous work so that the destroyer, the angel of death of the firstborn, might not touch them. And they do. Now verse 29. I know many of you guys are excited to get here. Here we go. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now, uh, this was for sure, if you grew up in any kind of church, church setting, like this is the story, right? One of the, the three. Like th 
this is the story, this is the, and I know many of you come in like with this kind of image in your mind, your uh, Charlton Heston style, you know what I'm saying, like <laughs> open, <laughs> who knows, I mean, it could be exactly like Moses. Um, what I love is that any picture that ever portrays the, the parting of a sea, it, like, like Moses always like, ta-da, you know what I'm saying, like, boom, what's up now, you know, kind of a cool moment. That was actually a Jim Gaffigan joke, I believe. Um, or some of you guys walk in with this image. It's kind of more a little bit cartoonish. Like we got everyone's walking through the sea and Jaws is all of a sudden makes his way in the, like biting at the Israelites as they're walking by. Please take that down for the love of all this good and holy. Now, if you're like me, anytime I've ever heard this story, the focus has always been on the sea. What I'm realizing is, I'm not so sure if that's the point at all. In fact, some might say, well, did God display his power in this? To me, when God parts the sea, I would say, of course. He, he owns creation. He made it. He made the sea. His ability to spread it wide open, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, we don't see that every day. But the fact that he would have the power and the capability to do that, that seems somewhat likely, doesn't it? It's the same thing like the disciples were really set back when Jesus calmed the storm. And they're like, even the winds and the waves obey him. Of course they do. He made them. He made the storm. He can certainly calm it. So then if that's not the focal point, what is? Let's check out this very wordy and hard words to say passage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zaphon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Here's what you got working right now. A million plus Israelites leaving Egypt, right? And then all of a sudden, I problema. We got a big sea in front of us, okay? And pretty soon, guess what's going to be trailing behind them? You've seen the movie maybe, the chariots, the Egyptians, they're coming. We're going to die, all a million of us. This is no good. Nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere, listen, nowhere, does it give indication that Moses was doubting. This guy has been on a crazy journey. I mean, he was a baby in a little boat passed down the Nile, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, and now he's standing in front of the sea with a million plus Israelites behind him and the Egyptians bearing down on them, wondering, God, okay, what are you going to have of this situation? I count, by my count, you can do the math later, 16 conversations up to this point that Moses has had with God. 16. As I look at those conversations... I can make one easy observation. When you've met with God, your faith grows. When we first met Moses, God, why me? And now, before a sea, no doubt. 
16 conversations with God later, you've got a man ready to hold out his staff with a million people behind him and watch the waters part. You meet with God and your faith grows. I have been waiting so long for the age-old answer that people ask me all the time. Mark, I'm, I, just, I struggle reading the scripture, which honestly, I still struggle understanding sometimes. That the two biggest issues for us as Christians in terms of our spiritual discipline is the Bible reading and prayer. I feel like sometimes if Peter were to be here and we were to be like, yo, Peter, great to see you, bro. I'm really struggling reading my Bible and praying. I really have the sense that he would behead us on the spot, you know, in love, of course, you know. Are you, hold on a second. You're saying you're struggling reading the Bible when I got crucified upside down? And you have the audacity to say, I'm struggling praying. Are you serious? Is he God or isn't he? That's the place you need to come to. So I've been longing for years. Like, how do I tell Christians that reading the Bible is more than just a discipline, but is a way of life? And so I've done it all, man. I mean, I've done read the Bible bracelets. I've done 30 days of this, 30 days of that. I've been so frustrated through the years trying to battle a spiritual discipline with discipline. Now, finally, I sit back from this example, and I say, a man has met with God 16 times, has heard God's voice, and he has the faith to stand in front of a sea and raise a staff. I say, that's reason enough to wait on the Lord and hear his voice. But Mark, I, like a burning bush, don't need it. Right here. The voice of God. Breathing through all of the pages, being revealed to you as a believer through the spirit that's inside of you. Here's your voice, consistent voice. And you'll know this, the more you're meeting with the Lord out of a deep love and care for an understanding of his character, my friends, the more you're willing to say, I will go and leave it all behind. And some of you are like, I'm just really struggling. Yeah, you know why? You're not in the word and you're not leaving anything. It's not really rocket science, is it, my friends? You're like, why am I struggling following the will of the Lord? You know his scripture not in the old English. You know what I'm saying? You don't know his word. You're not longing to be in this scripture. And so my encouragement to you is this. If you want a desire and have a life that's following after Christ where your faith is building and you think that you can do that devoid of his word, you are largely mistaken, my friend. Right? Now, What's the biggest miracle in all this? Is it a God who parts the seas? Listen, let me ask you this. If there are no people here, no people, and we have a story about God parting the sea, what's your perspective of the story? It lessens a little bit, doesn't it? Isn't there a little bit something in you like, okay, that, that's, that's cool. But what happens when you thrust a million people in the midst? And then all of a sudden, listen, God parts the sea and watches his people walk through. These same people who just chapters ago believed not, and now all one million of them are walking through this parted sea that at any moment could collapse on them. And as scripture said, after they got to the other side, the water enclosed on Pharaoh's army and they saw the bodies of Pharaoh's army 
on the surface of the sea. The power of God shown in the miracle not of the sea, but in what God can do in people. Keep in mind, this is after the fall. After sin comes in the world. Now, there's been a scripture anytime I've tried to describe God's power that I've always turned to. I've always quoted it. It's on many t-shirts I own. It's here in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 7, which says this. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Anytime I'm feeling like I need a little courage, this seems to be my verse. He gave me a spirit of power, right? And if you guys use this verse a lot, right? Like it's on a couple, you know, you, got, you made a little like you know, post-it note that's on your dashboard. Has this verse ever made it to your dashboard? That's when you know you're a hardcore Christian, all right? Post-its are on your dashboard. Write that down. Take, take notes. Just kidding. Um, what I've realized in preparation for this, I have no clue what this means. I didn't. This was a, a great tag verse, a great tagline, but it really wasn't something that had ingrained in me. God had given me a spirit of power. What is that power? Is, is a God that's powerful like some God that's walking up to a carnival getting ready to flex his muscles and then he takes his hammer and hits the thing and goes off the charts? Is, is, is that a God that, like, is that how God shows his power? Does he show it in the seas? God shows his power and the amount that we can never understand it in what he has done in your life. How he has taken you completely depraved, fallen, sinful. The complete unlikely character to ever be used or ever be forgiven. Which I know many of you feel that way. How could God ever use me? How could God ever forgive me? That's exactly the point. He has shown his power in taking you. Sending his son Jesus to die on a cross. So that all those sins that you feel like could never be forgiven were nailed to it. Then he walked out of the tomb, Philippians 3 saying, power in the resurrection so that your life could be saved. That's the power of God, taking depraved, sinful men and women and making them new creations. And so all of a sudden I was like sitting there watching this sunrise this morning. And I was like, I'm longing, God, to know your power. And I've prayed over and over, 1 Corinthians 4.12, believing that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk or power. God, I want to believe that you're powerful. I want to know that you're all powerful. I want to trust, God, that you can help me leave it all behind. God, what is it that I need to understand about your power? And I simply just heard, it's that I saved you, Mark. It said, in my love, I was gracious on you, though you didn't deserve it. Try to explain that power, Mark. And as I look out in this room, at a bunch of unlikely characters, a bunch of people who would say the same thing as Moses, why have you chosen me? And I look at what God is doing in your life, I can't help then but to say God is powerful. And not just believe it like it's some nice bumper sticker but to leave that his power is all-encompassing. Let's stand together, would you?
think the great example of Moses in and that he leaves and that he keeps the Passover and that he crosses the sea. It's simply that this guy is proof of what God can do. And my fear tonight is that many of you are here and everything that's happening in you is I know that you're calling me to go. I know I'm supposed to head this way, God. I know this is what you want of me, but I'm just... I'm, I'm hanging on to all of this that's back here. Can we just take a second and believe this? Whatever this is, the shame, the regret, the relationship, the lust, the passion, whatever you're trying to drag along, there's something in you that's believing that he's not capable to cause your grip of that to loose. Can we just take a second and make the statement that God is all-powerful to get rid of all of those things in your life so that you can freely go. Can we just make that statement right now? Can we just claim victory in the fact that the things that we're placing in our minds that God is not powerful to do is actually the very thing that He desires to do so that no man may boast, but that all glory would be His. Amen? And so what I see in this room then is a community of faith, a community of miracles, a whole bunch of people gathered for the purpose of being trained as missionaries to go out into a world and say, no, 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 you have to hear this. You have to hear this. I know you feel like you could never be forgiven, but let me tell you what he's done in me. He has taken me all the way out of the pit and given me life. And so, my friends, in the moment, hundreds of years after the Passover, as the disciples and Jesus are celebrating the ancient Passover and Jesus takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. It was all new language. They had never heard this in the Passover. All of a sudden, the sacrifice of the Christ was the focus. And then he takes the cup and in the words that the ancient Israelites and new alike would have known, this is the cup that represents the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And so since then, hundreds and hundreds of years, the church has been celebrating in the Lord's Supper. Remembering what Christ has done and celebrating the power of God in us. And so tonight we respond for believers coming out of our rows and pulling a piece of the bread off and dipping it in the cup and this walk for you tonight as we respond is, God, I want to leave it all for the sake of knowing you. So, God, I pray tonight that the work that you do in our hearts is causing us to believe that you're gracious and loving and powerful enough to help us leave porn behind and the relationship that's stifling us and the addictions that are killing us and the shame that's reminding, of us, reminding us of our past. God, please help us see the power in you to take all of it away. Help us go. Respond when you're ready.